beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, are you living with denial? Are you living with denial? If, if so, you ought to know it doesn't work. If you deny your problems, if you just pretend, if you try to pretend them away, if you don't want to recognize them, you don't want to acknowledge your problems, then you, then you can't find the solution. It's just, it's not possible to pretend your problems away. If you're driving along the highway and you see the lights of the police car in your rear vision mirror, no matter how much you try to pretend that away, you're going to have to deal with that at one point or another. And the longer you ignore the problem, the worse it's going to get, right? It doesn't end well. And as fallen human beings, we live in denial on so many levels. Our fallen nature doesn't want to face up to our problems. And especially doesn't want to face up to our root problem, which is sin. And we have all these coping mechanisms, all these little strategies that we have to hide our sin. To look the other way and ignore our sin and its consequences. To camouflage sin and the results of sin. And so what God does, he takes the law and he puts it before us. The law, one of the uses of the law is as a mirror. And the law is not just any kind of mirror. The law is a mirror into which we can look and see not just as what we look like superficially on the outside... But the law, we can look into the law and it shows us deep into our souls who we really are. That's amazing. You look at what we just read as we confessed that Scripture teaches us about this use of the law in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, what we read from Matthew 22 is just so, so simple and so benign and, and so sweet and wonderful. The law is not coming with all kinds of rules and regulations and heavy, heavy demands. The law is just saying love, just love. Love God. Love your neighbor. It's that easy. The law, love God, love your neighbor. We can imagine that as, as like two tracks for a train, and if the train's on the tracks and, and both of the tracks are there, then that's limiting in one way. The train can only go along the tracks. But at the same time, it's, it's liberating because the train is free to just zoom along full steam along those tracks. You can have this massive locomotive that can weigh up to 200 Tons, and it can pull all kinds of train cars and move lots of people and lots of cargo long distances over deep valleys, over these little trestle bridges. There are no guardrails, but you don't have to be afraid because if the train's just on those tracks, you're safe. Stay on the tracks, you're going to get places. Life's going to be good. But if you're climbing through the mountains and you come around a bend, and there's this trestle bridge over, going over this very, very deep valley in the Rockies. And somebody's been fiddling with the rails halfway the bridge, and the locomotive goes off. Then that's not going to be pretty. And we can compare 
our lives to such a train, train wreck. And when a locomotive weighing that much goes off the rails and pulls all the cars behind it with it, you can't just back up and get back on. That's not how it works. You can't just also say, well, I'm off the rail, so I might as well just drive through the countryside now and, and feel free from these limitations of these, of these rails. Now I can go wherever I want. That's not going to work either. That's not how trains work. And it doesn't help if you've just had this massive train wreck and you look back and you see way back, you know, train car number 50 or something, you see that train car number 50 still has its wheels touching the rails at certain points and say, see, see, we're still on the rails. It's not that bad, is it? Oh, yes, it's bad. It doesn't matter how many cars are still touching the rails. If the locomotive's off, we've got a problem. You're not, not going to be getting anywhere. You're not going to be going anywhere. You're not going to get to your destination. That's the, that's the picture of the human race. That's the picture of the fall. We're off the rails, and we're stuck off the rails, and we can't back up and fix it ourselves. The Bible says we're, we're living as people who, who are hating one another and being hated. We've gone right off those rails of love. Love God, love your neighbor. We can't do it. And that's a problem. Because the Bible's very clear about what happens when we're not traveling along those twin rails of the law of God. What does Galatians 3.10 say? Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So on the rails, it's good. We're, we're, we're loving God. We're loving our neighbor. Life is good. When we're off the rails, there's curse. There's death. There's pain. And then James tells us, James chapter 2, verse 10, James tells us whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of it all. That's the way it works. You, you can't say, well, the, the, the via train that I took from here to, to Vancouver, it, it stayed on the track most of the time. It was just that one spot, that one trestle bridge, it hopped off. But for the rest, it stayed on the track. That's not good enough. If you go off once, you've ruined everything. That's the way it is with the law of God. You break one law, you break them all. And we turn to Romans 3.19 for a second. Uh, we read that together. Just call your attention to 3. 19 and 20 of the book of Romans. And what does the Holy Spirit tell us? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As we, as human beings, look at the law of God, we see those twin rails, love God, love your neighbor, and we look at the train wreck of our lives, then the law tells us, listen, you've messed up, you can't fix this, you've got a problem. That's what the law tells us. You're off the rails, and you can't get back on. Well, we know that the story doesn't end there, right? I mean, we've gone through the catechism, we've gone through the scriptures, we know the gospel, we know the end of the story, we know that the Lord Jesus came to fix this exact problem, we know that the Lord Jesus came to deal with sin, we know that the Lord Jesus came to change our hearts, hearts that no longer hate but are filled with his love. So we know the end of the story, so why bother talk about sin if we know it's been dealt with already? Well, there are at least three things I want to 
draw your attention to as to why we ought to be spending time thinking and talking about sin. First of all, the, the catechism leads us through the way of salvation. The, the catechism is a teaching tool. It teaches us what the problem is, sin, what the solution is, Jesus Christ and his person and work, and what the consequences are, uh, renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit who makes us more and more like Jesus every day. And so we have to rehearse those facts as a church because we, older people, may have heard this many times in our lives, but our little children don't get born with that programmed into their heads. They need to hear it and learn it over and over. So our little children, they're born with with a sin problem, and they need to know and they need to learn what they are by nature so that they too can be encouraged to look to the solution, to look to Christ. And then we have visitors who may be watching online or who may be visiting with us from time to time. If they don't know the Lord Jesus, if we have visitors that don't know Christ, then they need to learn about the problem of sin first so that they can be encouraged to look to Christ second. Uh, to solve the problem. If you don't know what's broken, then you don't know how to look for a solution, a fix. And then thirdly, I would say that the, the more we meditate on the depth of the horror of our sin, the better we can understand why Christ came and suffered and died and rose, and the more we can realize how much that cost him And so the more we can praise him. So the greater we understand our sin, the greater can be the glory and the praise and the thanksgiving. You know, if you're 10 cents short at the grocery store and somebody at the next aisle says, oh, here, let me just loan you that 10 cents or give you that 10 cents. You say, thank you very much. That's a little bit of thankfulness. But if you are doing a month's worth of groceries and you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars and all of a sudden you realize that you left your wallet at home and then somebody pays for you, the bigger the problem, the greater the thankfulness when it's dealt with. And so it's good for us to spend time reflecting on and meditating on our sin that we have by nature. And then we look at our confession and after that beautiful summary of the law in question answer four, we have the simple question, so can you keep all this perfectly? And the answer is shocking. This is a breathtaking confession. We say, no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. The church isn't saying, well, you know, people out there are really bad if they're not Christians, if they don't go to church, people are bad. No, we are saying as believers, I have the problem. I am inclined by nature, me. I'm inclined by nature, that's who I am naturally, to hate God and my neighbor. That's a hard thing for us to to swallow. It's one of the worst things to go when the church has to drift away from the word of God. Just an honest appraisal of what sin is and what our relationship to sin is by nature very, very quickly gets First of all, ignored and downplayed and finally forgotten altogether because it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant. It's not really going to make you popular in your neighborhood if you come to the neighborhood barbecue and start talking about this fact. And, And we have trouble processing it too because we know unbelievers who are very nice people. And so we say, well, if I confess... 
scripture teaches, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That counts for me, that counts for every human being. But, but I see nice people out there that, that aren't in Christ. So can we really say this? Brothers and sisters, it's a good reminder that what we believe is not based on or built on or founded on our experience and our views of the world. If that was the case, we'd be in trouble. What we believe and what we confess is based on the Word of God. God knows everything. God reveals to us what He wants us to know. And that's where we go if we want to understand the world and who we are and who God is and what He's done. So what does the Bible say about human beings? What does the Bible say about fallen sinners? So let's turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. And we've read this a few times after the law, so I think most of us are familiar with it. 1 John 1, 8, where Scripture says, well, we'll, read, um, yeah, we'll read verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the apostle is speaking to, to Christians, and he's saying, you know, even if you're a Christian, you have sin. You're a You're a sinner. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just uh, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So God says, all people are sinners. And if we say, no, Lord, I'm actually not really a sinner, then we're saying, God, you're a liar. And if we're going to have a showdown with God and decide who's telling the truth and who's not, we're going to lose because God is truth. He says it, we confess it. And what does the Bible say about this sin problem of ours? Well, it's, the Bible says we're sinners not just once in, once in a while, but we are sinners all the time. Look at Genesis 6, 5. This is just before the flood. And Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, not some, every, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, Continually, not some of the time, continually. We're sinners all the time. Then you turn to Genesis 8, 21. This is after the flood, but God knows that the heart hasn't changed of fallen man. He says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So from the most tender age, God says, not something learned here, it's something that's built in in fallen man, uh, the intention of his heart is, is evil. That's what fallen man is. And that's what we are by nature. And, and David understands that. You remember that famous psalm where he's confessing his sin. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's murdered Uriah, her husband. And then he's, He's exposed, his sin is exposed, and he he cries out to God, Psalm 51, to have mercy, to to wash him, to blot out his transgressions, to cleanse him. He knows that God has to fix this. He can't fix it. He can't do something to make up. And then look what he says in verse 3, Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, 
I, I know I'm in sin. I know that sin in the first place is against you, O most holy God. And look at verse 5. He says, Lord, you know what? I am not a sinner because of some sin that I did. But I did this sin because I'm a sinner. You get the difference? The act doesn't make you a sinner. The sinner makes you do the act. He says, look, God, this is who I am. This is my identity by nature. I was brought forth in iniquity. That's how I was born. I came into this world as a broken, fallen sinner. That's, my, that's who I am. And in sin did my mother conceive me. From the very beginning of my existence, I have been a sinner. That's my nature. And what does that mean? Well... Romans chapter 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can't keep the law. We can't keep something so simple. Just love God, love your neighbor. Not sometimes, all the time. We can't do that. And the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. If we are born and conceived in sin, we can't expect sinlessness to be the fruit of our lives. And we know what happens to diseased trees in the orchard. The, the gardener, the farmer will chop them down and burn them. So that's our problem. And, and the problem is that we can't change our problem. Jeremiah says, can the leopard change his spots? You know, can the leopard change the way he looks? No, he can't. It's built into his, his, his body and his fur. So also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. It's not something you can change. It's like something that's imprinted into your very nature inside and outside. And so the Bible gives us a very, very unpleasant picture of who we are by nature. And we turn to Ephesians 2, verse 1, for instance. Ephesians 2, 1. We look at the first few verses. This is him once again speaking to the church. And you were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the picture of who we are by nature, just dead in our sins and, and slaves to our passions and desires. We can't say no to them. We have to do them. You know, we're really good at faking it, and we can deny it, and we can camouflage, and we can put on a good show, and we can maybe even deceive others, but none of that can change the terrible fact of the abyss into which we have plunged. We haven't just gone off the tracks a little bit and sunk into the dirt on the side of the railroad. We have plunged off the trestle bridge. We've fallen into the valley below. We've smashed on the rocks. 
and nothing we can do can get things back on track again. There's going to be, need to be a massive search and rescue and repair job to get this train back on track. We need help. We need lots of help. We need outside help. There's no way we can fix this. And that's what the scripture teaches us, and that's what the church confesses here in Lord's Day 2, because that's where God wants us. God wants to drive us to that understanding, to that conclusion, that I cannot fix this problem. I cannot help myself. I cannot make some changes, some superficial changes to my life or to my actions or to my attitudes. I need radical surgery in my heart. And you know, that's the first step of evangelism. Sinners need to know their sin. Or the gospel doesn't make any sense. Sinners need to see their need to drive them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why it's really a waste of time to kind of primp up and pretty up the worship service to kind of make unbelievers feel comfortable, feel attracted. That, that's not what they need. They need to know why they need Christ. We can give them music they're looking for. We can give them activities that make them have lots of fun and enjoy social interactions. But they need to hear the gospel. And the first step of hearing the gospel is that they see that they are sinners. They look into the law of Christ, the law of God, and they realize how much they need Christ. You know, so often... We get that wrong, but also unbelievers get that wrong. They see this nicely dressed bunch of people who, are, who seem to have their lives all together, and they sit so nicely in church with their families, and they seem like such pleasant people. And I've often heard unbelievers, they've often spoken with me in my work in the past years, and they've said, you know what? I, I really want to come to church, but first I'm going to clean up my life, and when I'm a, when I, when, then I can join you guys. Then I can join you guys and be a good person like you guys are. No, a thousand times no, that's not what it's all about. The church is for the broken, the church is for the lost, the church is for the messed up, the church is for the sinner covered in shame, the sinner consumed with guilt, the sinner who has come to the blessed realization that nothing he can do can fix his problem. The church is the place to come with empty hands, to come as unworthy, wretched, guilty, hell-deserving sinners, and to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, take my life and change it. Lord, do it, because I can't even begin to make things right. I can't even begin to get back onto track. Are you living with denial? Why? Why would you do that? You can live your whole life going to church, trying to keep your figurative mask from slipping, trying to look good to others, and you may get away with it. Trying to look like you belong, avoiding anything which would expose your problem, your sin. 
And you may even be very good at it. You may impress other people and think, well, that other people may think of you. You're such a holy and pious and righteous Christian. But why would you do that? Brother, sister, you have a Savior. And your Savior is God of God. Very God of very God. Do you think you can fool him? He knows you inside out. He, he, he holds out the gospel to you. In your baptism, in the preaching, in the supper. So stop covering your sin up. Face it. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Turn away from it. It might be something terrible you've done yesterday or 30 years ago. It might be something that people consider very small, like you've got a problem with anger. Okay, I've got anger issues, so what? That's a sin. And you need to deal with that. Let's turn to Psalm 32 for a second. Psalm 32. As long as the Lord Jesus has not yet returned, brothers and sisters, all of us have things that we need to deal with. Big or small. Old or new or more recent. And in Psalm 32, the, the Holy Spirit shows us this blessed dynamic. And Paul mentions that as well in his, in his epistles, and we read that. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, look what happens when you don't deal with it. Look what happens when you stay in denial. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So much lost joy in the Christian life, whether it's in my life or in, 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 the, in, in our individual lives or in the life of, of our marriages and families and us as a congregation. So much lost joy because we're holding on to sin that we don't want to deal with because it's going to hurt. Because we're going to be embarrassed. And it sucks out, it's, it just sucks away the joy of salvation. And we grow. God's hand is heavy upon us. But look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, comma, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's how quick it is, you see. You confess it's gone. It's that fast. There are no climbing up, you know, a whole bunch of stairs to the, the, on the, at the cathedral to the, all kinds of sacrifices and reciting the Lord's Prayer so many times and so many Hail Marys. No, you confess your sin, comma, and God forgives. Forgave. It's already in the past tense. The iniquity of my sin. That's all it takes, my brother and sister. So why are you holding on to it? Why do you continue in denial? Come to the Lord, confess your sin, and know the liberating joy of forgiveness. And so it's important that we as church spend time, every year we do this, considering and meditating on our sin to drive us to the Lord Jesus, realizing that he is the only solution. And then parents... 
This is also important for how we bring up our children. Our children need to learn what it means that, as the baptism form says, we and they are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature, there it is again, by nature, children of wrath, so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. Our kids need to understand that. We need to know that about our kids. If we bring them up with legalism, if we bring them up to follow the rules, if we bring them up to understand, listen, if I don't listen to the rules, then dad and mum will lose their temper. If that's the way they're growing up, then we're bringing up Pharisees and we're putting their souls in eternal danger. We're telling them, do the right thing when people are looking or somebody's going to get mad. As long as I do the right thing, when people are watching, I won't get into trouble. As long as I conform outwardly and don't get exposed, life is good. Brother and sister, that's a very dangerous way to bring up our children. Our children need to know this. Now, this may sound a little funny, but it's true. Children, we don't want you to do the right thing. Doesn't that sound strange? There's more to it. You've got to keep listening. We want you first to desire to do the right thing. To long to do the right thing. To recognize that your sinful little heart is by nature hostile to God and to God's law, and that therefore... You need the Spirit of God to work a miracle, to give you a new heart that doesn't like sinning, that doesn't enjoy temptation, that hates anything that is against God's law, that just longs to love God and to love the neighbor. And because of that radical heart change, wants to do the right thing. Brothers and sisters, if we understand the gospel of Lord's Day 2, we will make it our highest priority for our children to be under preaching as early as it's possible, depending on each child. It's different, but we want our children under preaching because that is the ordinary means. The foolishness of preaching is the ordinary means which the Holy Spirit uses to make happen that incredible, incredible miracle of changing a heart of stone into a heart of flesh in transforming a heart of unbelief into a heart of faith. The Holy Spirit uses preaching primarily to work faith and strengthen faith. And that's why may God so keep us, brothers and sisters, to keep being a boring church, to not fall for the, uh, the falsehood that we need to have all kinds of entertainment and theater and make everybody really excited to get people into the building. No, may we focus on that simple means of grace through which the Holy Spirit regenerates dead sinners into living children of the living God. And what holds true for our kids holds true for us as well. As we struggle with sin, we struggle with temptation, we struggle with addictions. Too often we deal with these things superficially, like, we've got to adjust our behaviors and our attitudes, and we've got to try and fix things from the outside. No. 
Lord's Day 2 teaches us not to be content with the superficial treatment. The problem goes deeper. It's not enough to strive for outward conformity and acceptance in our community. And as elders, we need to be watching out for that too, that we're not looking for that, that we're not pushing for that. Just, just, just conform. Show up, show up in church. Live in the same house as your wife. Okay, everything's fine. No, that's not fine. It's not good enough. If I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor, then I need a new nature. This nature is no good. I need another one. And so I need to pray, Lord, change my heart. Change my nature. Make me be born again, O Lord. Rip my sin out by the roots. Don't just make me stop my sinful behavior. That's not enough. Take away my desire for sin. Take away, God, my, take away my pleasure in sin, O Lord. Take away my delight in sin. Because no amount of work that I do can fix things. Change my nature, O oh God. That's where the gospel of our sin and misery drives us to. And that's a good thing. Let's end with Titus 3, verse 3 to 7. Titus 3, verse 3 to 7. And the apostle says in Titus 3, verse 3 to 7, that's page 998. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't fix things. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration means being born again. Getting a new nature. Being a new person. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's regeneration. Whom he poured out, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does that mean? It means the gospel says that this horrible, terrible, nasty old nature that makes me hate God and my neighbor, and which I can't fix, God rips out of me. And he puts in its place a new nature. I'm born again by the power of the Spirit of the living God. And so we're back on track, aren't we, when we're in Christ? We're back on track. Love God. Love your neighbor. Those glorious limits, those rails which give us amazing freedom and liberty to get to where we have to go. You know... How you know this is true? God God has given you something, brothers and sisters. God has given you something, little brothers and sisters, children as well. He's giving you something that you carry everywhere and that tells you that this is true. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you are a new creation. That you no longer have this nasty old nature, but that you have a nature 
made and transformed after the image of Christ himself. And do you know what that is? That, that seal that God puts on you to tell you that that's true? It's your baptism. It's right here. You carry it with you everywhere, right on your head. And every time the devil comes and says, hey, why don't you sin? Then you can point to your baptism. Like our brother Luther used to do. He would say, I am a baptized man. What are you talking about? Sin. I'm a baptized man. And I am inclined by nature to love God and to love my neighbor. Praise God. Amen.